If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is hour number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this August 6, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I am the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. As we record this a day earlier than normal on a Saturday because we were informed that on Sunday the studio would have no electricity, which then, you know, with dominoes being what they are, uh, created uh, all sorts of uh, aftershocks for how this show would work. We're actually planning, as of this moment, to do three hours because instead of one guest who I had to allow to be canceled because the Saturday didn't work, I believe because they're Jewish, then we now have two guests, both of which are fantastic. Uh, but one, uh, I'm not 100% sure because, you know, they're a Trump supporter. And therefore, as a big time Trump supporter, you're always a little bit suspicious that they may bail out on you at the last second. But uh, we're expected to be joined by uh, one of the biggest uh, online Trump supporters at least until recently, because one of the reasons why I wanted to have him on is that he has gotten a lot of publicity this week for no longer wanting to be known as a Trump supporter. His name is Mike Cher- uh, Chernovich, uh, Mike Trevonich, uh, who is uh, an alt-right conspiracy theorist, and Trevonich actually lives also here in Southern California, but he's very, very well known online and, and actually has gotten... A lot of credibility, uh, amazingly so, within the White House, uh, both pro and con, as the National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, has apparently on multiple occasions attacked Chernovich, uh, uh, Chernovich, I guess is how I should be saying it, uh, within meetings of the National Security Council. So um, we're hoping to do that in hour number two. This would be our second consecutive pro-Trump interview in hour number two. I hope you heard last week's with Milo Iannopoulos, which was a fascinating interview on a number of levels. I took a slightly different tack than normal, didn't really attack him. We had well over an hour, and uh, I think he was pretty much exposed for what he is. I'll let you decide that, but if you missed the interview with Milo, make sure that you check that out at uh, freespeechbroadcasting.com, which is our uh, website. So as of now, 
Uh, this is hour number one. There'll be- definitely be uh, an hour with the uh, reporter from NPR, David Falkenflick, who, uh, which we're planning on our, as our bonus hour number three, who did the bombshell story this week on the uh, Fox News Channel lawsuit, which alleges that Donald Trump himself was behind the entire Seth Rich conspiracy story. And this is uh, explosive stuff. Got a lot of uh, news coverage this week. I wrote a column about that as well for Mediate. Once again, you can find that at freespeechbroadcasting.com. But David joins us in hour number three, and that's a really, really good interview, which we've already done. And so, therefore, I know that's going to actually happen. It's been recorded. It's in the bank. Nothing can be done to it unless something really catastrophic occurs. So, bottom line is... Planning on three hours. This is hour number one, which is the news hour. And as is usually the case in this era of Trump, there's a lot to get to, some of which is not Trump-related. But let's get to the Trump stuff first. Uh, When we last spoke last weekend, (laughs) I predicted, among other things, that Anthony Scaramucci, the director of communications for the White House, was not going to be around long. I never (laughs) anticipated that it would be the next day that on Monday he would already be fired from his job at the White House after only 10 or 11 days. Boy, that escalated quickly. <laughs> my my theory behind this was rather obvious, that he burned way too bright and he was way too similar to Trump and he was way too eager to please Trump and there's a short shelf life for uh, or half life for for any star that uh, tries to do that. And uh, also, I guess the critical point, which I hadn't really fully thought out, but I should have. The, I guess the real reason why Scaramucci got decapitated so quickly is that Scaramucci, in his enthusiasm to and, and ego and overconfidence in overtaking the White House, didn't think about, okay, if I get rid of Rince Priebus, which supposedly was my job, I mean, he was successful in doing that, someone's going to replace Priebus. And that the person who replaces Priebus might not like me. And oh, by the way, if my job is, this is the strategic mistake that Scarabucci made, if my job is to create chaos... And get rid of Spicer, you know. Although Spicer was gone when Scaramucci was hired, uh, which is just so typical of this bizarre world, Trump White House. But then to get rid of Priebus, well, then that's going to create a chaos narrative. And if you create a chaos narrative, what does that mean for the new chief of staff? Well, I realize logic doesn't always carry the day in this world, especially not in the Trump world. But logic would dictate that the next chief of staff is going to be an anti-chaos person. Well, that's exactly what turned out to be the case, is General Kelly is the new chief of staff. He's not going to put up with any funny business. And immediately, Scaramucci was out. He didn't even get to speak to Trump about it. Trump was apparently unavailable after Kelly asked for his resignation, which is so classic Trump. What a wussy. Donald Trump is. I predicted last week, numerous times, he was not going to fire Jeff Sessions as attorney general because he doesn't have the balls. I've been right about that, and now I'm 100% right about that because the word is Kelly 
has made it clear he's not going to let him fire Jeff Sessions. Well, Trump didn't have the balls to even speak with Scaramucci. Well, he did speak with him on the phone, apparently, after he was escorted off the White House grounds. But he did not speak to him in person to hear his appeal as to why he was getting fired and humiliated after 10 days of being in the limelight. So the Scaramucci thing is is fascinating. Now, there's part of me that thinks and hopes that this could be, and I'm, you know, we've heard this many times before, is this the pivot to being presidential? Is this finally going to be the time when Trump is controlled? And, you know, at a certain point, the definition of insanity is, you know, you keep trying to do the same thing over and over again and getting the same result. Well, similarly, I, I am not someone who believes that you're going to be able to contain or change Donald Trump for an extended period of time. Now, he might be sufficiently castrated at this point that he doesn't have much other option but to go along with whatever Kelly wants. It's something I'm going to get to a little bit later on in the hour. But uh, there's also, there were so many things that happened this week, as is happening almost on a weekly basis. Uh, one of them that I wrote a column about was the explosion of Trump lies. I mean, the Trump lying has gotten now absolutely pathological. I wrote a column for Mediate about this. And really from the standpoint of the fact that his pathological lying is helping him. Because he has desensitized us to his lies to such a degree that they have almost no meaning. I mean, think about the fact that George Herbert Walker Bush, his entire presidency, a guy who had this stellar career, incredibly honest person, good guy. He says at the convention in 1988, read my lips, no new taxes. And then once he gets into the presidency and he realizes we needed to raise taxes, I don't know if it was a good decision or not, but that's what he felt like he needed to do because it was one lie and he had not been inoculated. (laughs) He had no immunity to being criticized as a liar because no one thought he was a liar. It brings down, or at least in part, brings down his entire presidency. My gosh, Trump does this on an hourly basis and on things far, far less important than tax policy. This week, he just made up a story. Made up a story about the Boy Scouts calling him to say that his speech to the Jamboree, which created a lot of controversy and for which they had to apologize, was the greatest speech that they've ever had at the Jamboree. There's no indication at all that it happened. None. And there would be. There would be, it would be something that could be easily proven, if true. Easily. It didn't happen. Now, I'm not sure which scenario is the scariest. Is he just lying about this because he has that much disregard for the truth? And because in that moment, it was in his self-interest to say, you know, because he's being criticized for giving a bizarre political speech to the Boy Scout Jamboree, that... Oh, no, no, the Boy Scouts called me. They told me it was awesome. Best ever. So is it just that he doesn't care about the truth? Or is it possible, and I think this is conceivable, that he really thinks that that's what happened? 
because he creates realities in his mind or that he's not all there, that he's not mentally well. I think these are all possibilities. And by the way, it could be a combination of all of them. But this it wasn't the only lie that he told. He made up a similar story about a call from the president of Mexico. His lying is pathological. I go through a list of them within just a couple of days of each other. But it's part of why I wrote another column, which I really urge you to check out, <laughs> about all the ways that Trump is like my five-year-old daughter, Grace. I am the leader. Do as I say. <laughs> that, that statement that she made while we were on vacation on the beach is what inspired me to write a column about the 20 different ways. And these are legitimate. A lot of people thought, come on, Ziegler, you can't be serious that your five-year-old daughter is like Trump or vice versa. Trump's like my five-year-old daughter. But when you read this list of 20 psychological and personality traits that they share in common, it's uncanny. And that was her doing her Donald Trump impression. I am the leader. Do as I say. So make sure you check out that column as well. But one of the one of the ways that they're similar is in the way that they view lying. Lying is simply a means to an end. You know, Grace says, I, I didn't create that mess that only I possibly could have created. And Trump just says, fake news. <laughs> it's basically the same, it's basically the same thing. They're also both obsessed with television. With Grace, it's Mickey Mouse Clubhouse in the morning. With Trump, it's Fox and Friends. They basically have the same level of journalistic integrity and credibility there. But you can check out the list for yourself again at freespeechbroadcasting.com. But more importantly is this issue of the lying, the pathological lying. Another occurred when Golf Magazine and Sports Illustrated came out with an extensive 7,000-word feature story on Trump and golf. And there are many ways in which lying had a role in that feature. One of which was that in the feature story was the allegation that Trump had gone to Bedminster. By the way, I've spent a lot of time in Bedminster. <laughs> I had a longtime girlfriend whose family owns a jewelry store in little tiny Bedminster, New Jersey. A beautiful area. But he was in his Bedminster. I played Bedminster Country Club uh, where this occurred. Trump, Trump Bedminster. Nice course. Anyway, I digress. The point here is that he was at Bedminster after having taken office, and he told at least eight different members in a little meeting that they had. By the way, this is swampy as hell, right? Drain the swamp. He's using his memberships at his clubs to basically create little pockets of access for rich people. That's as swampy as it gets. So what he's effectively doing is, hey, if you're a member at Bedminster, you're going to get special access to me. We'll have special meetings. You know, we'll hang out. You'll get information no one else is getting. Gee, I wonder if that increases the value of the memberships at his golf clubs. But again, I digress. The point here is he apparently told them that he spends so much time in Bedminster because the White House is a real dump. Now, I've never been 
I've, even though I went to school at Georgetown in Washington, D.C., I've never been to the White House. I don't know. It's, I don't think it's a dump. It's, I can guarantee it to you, if Barack Obama ever said the White House is a real dump, the right-wing media would be going bonkers. <laughs> They'd be going absolutely crazy. But it's Trump, so we just excuse it. But Trump lied about that. Trump denied that ever happening. Now, why do I know it's a lie? I know it's a lie because eight people said to Golf Magazine separately, these are all people who at least don't hate Trump because they're members of his golf course, all of whom are credible people because they got enough money to be a member at Trump Bedminster. Eight people all said exactly the same thing. And these reporters are not Trump critics. That's what's most interesting. These, because I, I listened to a 45-minute podcast that the reporters on this story did. I urge you to do so this, yourself. If you have any interest in this and the time, Google the Golf Magazine podcast on Donald Trump. Fascinating and important stuff, which I'll get to momentarily. But these are not Trump critics. And Golf Magazine in general... And the golf media in general has been kissing Trump's ass at almost, not quite, it's not possible to duplicate, but an almost Sean Hannity-esque fashion since the beginning. Why? Because they are invested in him. I mean, in many ways. The conflict of interest that the golf media has, and the golf media is pathetic to begin with. There's, there is no element of our media more pathetic than the golf media. And the reason for that is, one, they're a bunch of morons. I mean, let's face it. I mean, media in general, dumb. But as you go down the ladder, golf media. Idiots! All right. And not only are they idiots and imbeciles, they have one goal. Keep their job. Which is even more imperative in the era where there's no more Tiger Woods. So these are all people who who 10 years ago thought that their jobs were secure because there was Tiger Woods. Now Tiger's gone. The business model is blown up. So now they can be fired in a heartbeat because of all sorts of reasons, but one of the reasons is there's no Tiger Woods anymore. And they've got a, it's an incredibly cushy job to be a golf reporter. I mean, it's the greatest writing gig there is left. So you will never do anything to offend anyone who might cost you a job, which means you do not offend Donald Trump. Because in the golf world, Trump is huge with a Y. So another element where lies are important in this story. So there's no way. Golf Magazine is not doing a hit job on Donald Trump. That's my point, okay? And these reporters are not critics of Donald Trump. They're actually, one of them was, a guy who was very, 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 very close to Trump for many years before he was a presidential candidate. Played golf with him a lot. Talked with him on the phone constantly, like to the point where he wanted Donald to stop calling him. So th this is a very credible story. The other element where lying is involved, that Trump is remarkably like Bill Clinton in so many ways. Although, bizarrely, I think he's worse than Clinton and not as smart as Clinton was when Clinton was president. And I despised, that's one of the stranger elements of this entire Trump phenomenon. I despised Bill Clinton as much as anybody when he was president. I wanted him removed from office during that whole impeachment saga more than anybody, certainly in my age group, because I was young then. 
But now I look back and I go, gee, Clinton wasn't all that bad. <laughs> I mean, it's not nearly the liar that Trump is, but the, on the golf course, they're exactly the same. They take lots of mulligans. They cheat. They lie. And to me, if you cheat on the golf course, you lie on the golf course, you're going to cheat and lie everywhere else in life. That is an absolute reality. And to the surprise of no one, Trump is a lying, cheating bastard on the golf course who also is delusional about how good he is. He's claimed to have won 18 club championships. Golf Magazine couldn't find evidence of one. I've won four club championships in my life at three different clubs. I could prove it in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. If, if Golf Magazine ever did a feature on me, I'd be able to prove it immediately. There's evidence all over the place. Yet, Golf Magazine can't find evidence of one. He's claimed to have shot 68 at Bel Air Country Club here in Los Angeles. I've played Bel Air Country Club several times. Ain't no freaking way Donald Trump shot a 68. They couldn't verify it. Trump got pissed off that they didn't put the 68 in the article. Because they spoke to the people he was with that day. And they said, no, he didn't shoot. And he's 68 at Bel Air. But here's the really important part of this uh, Golf Magazine story, which didn't even make it into the story. Which is, It's fascinating to me where podcasting now is really maybe the last place you can get the full real truth. But when I listened to this podcast. It was amazing to me to hear... What these two, again, pro-Trump reporters found and really believe about Trump and Russia. And I know the way the media works. I know the way reporters work. It was not difficult to read between the lines. Here's what really occurred. They found out that it is almost assured that Trump's two most prominent golf courses— Doral in Miami, and Turnberry in Scotland, that he got those golf courses at least in part, if not largely because of Russian money. But they couldn't prove it. And so it, it, because it would be so explosive if that was true, they decided not to put it in the story. But they spoke about it on the podcast, and they spoke about how people close to Trump who are experts in this area, told them that they're almost positive that Turnberry and Doral came because of Russian money. And in case you don't understand the significance of that, Trump has denied that constantly, that he has no connection to Russia, no connection to Russian money. And when I heard the allegation, I'm like, wow, that actually makes a lot of sense because the Turnberry and Doral transactions were very different than Trump's normal golf course transactions. And I just presumed it was because, well, maybe, you know, the real estate market's gotten better and he had more money. No, I'm, I'm convinced after listening to this podcast that his golf courses are part of this web of Russian connections that Trump is terrified are going to be known largely because obviously there's a special counsel investigation of whether or not 
his campaign colluded with Russia during the 2016 presidential campaign. And there were some developments on that front this week. Robert Mueller, it was announced or leaked, whatever, that he has convened a grand jury in Washington, D.C. Now, it's possible that this grand jury is being overhyped. It's possible that this is simply a um, geographical issue over whether or not to do it in Virginia or D.C. I don't know. I'm not an expert in this area. It made a lot of news. I will say it's not good news for Trump if a grand jury is being convened among the population of Washington, D.C. In fact, it would be the jurisdiction that would be the worst for him in the entire United States, if not maybe the world. One, because you've got mostly Democrats. And even the Republicans you have there are mostly never Trump Republicans. Trump, I think, got less than 5% of the vote in Washington, D.C. So if you're convening a grand jury of a population where you only got 5% tops of the vote, and that's before a lot of crap came out about you, that's, that's worrying. That's troubling. Another thing with regard to Russia that came out, and this came out actually just last night, which I found very interesting, is that we now know that our intelligence agencies were, were engaged in a major fight against Russian intelligence or operatives on election day because Russian operatives were involved in a major fake news campaign against Hillary Clinton. Now, you might say, well, on election day, how much influence could that really have? Well, it could. I agree that it's not going to have as much influence as it might have earlier in the campaign. But when you consider that the reason why Trump won was because Hillary's people didn't turn out, every little thing when the the goal here is to disseminate fake negative information about Hillary Clinton on Twitter and Facebook, it can have an impact. Why is it that people in Wisconsin did not show up and Michigan did not show up? It was not. It's important to point out. This is really important to point out. It was not that Trump got a massive amount of new votes that no one anticipated. His vote totals in Wisconsin and Michigan were basically identical to what Mitt Romney got against a much, much, much more difficult opponent in 2012. It was a lack of Hillary voters in those states. And so this negative fake news campaign instigated by the Russians could have had an impact on this. But when I read that story, my first reaction was, okay, so now it's really difficult to not look at other things that we knew already in a different light, in a different prism. One of which is, and this I've had suspicions about this from the beginning, my BS detector went off instantaneously when this story came out. You may recall, because it got a lot of publicity, but it got a lot of publicity in the, in the context of, gee, isn't this a funny story? Ha, ha, ha. It's kind of amazing that this happened. I'm referring to a story that, a lot of fake news on Facebook during the campaign had its origins 
in one little town in Macedonia and that those perpetrating the fake news were a bunch of Macedonian teenagers who were just so entrepreneurial and so go get them and so aggressive and so brilliant that they realized that they could make money by creating fake right-wing news websites and making up a bunch of bullcrap about Hillary Clinton and flooding Facebook with it. And when I heard that story, I'm like, it's just flat out ridiculous. There's no way. There is no way. Even if by some chance some teenager in Macedonia got this idea, it would never have gotten off the ground that quickly and to that degree with that level of success. You need organization. You need capital. You need direction. You need people that know English, for instance. You, you, you need all sorts of things, even if by some miracle you got this brilliant idea. It, it's, to me, it was inconceivable. There's no way that that just happened organically. That, and now I think it's pretty easy to conclude what really happened. That assuming that it's even close to what we were told, that that whole deal was a Russian front that these Macedonian teenagers were effectively the WikiLeaks of that operation. That's what was happening. It's obvious. Now, that poses two really important questions. Why? (laughs) And what kind of an impact did it have? Because I'm starting to come to the conclusion, you know, one of the basic premises of the, the hard right on this whole... Russian collusion thing is, well, who cares? It didn't make any difference. I've never bought into that because what do you mean who cares? This is really significant if it happened. And we know it was attempted. But this is, talk about dangerous precedents. You can't get much more dangerous than this. Especially since it's Russia and Putin. But I'm even starting to now think that the ultimate fallback position of, well, it didn't make any difference. I'm beginning to think that that's not necessarily true. I don't know. It's probably unknowable. But it certainly didn't hurt Donald Trump. And the margins here were incredibly small. And this fake news campaign is continuing to today. You know, H.R. McMasters, the lieutenant general who's the national security advisor, there is a campaign on Twitter right now To fire him. The fire McMaster's hashtag was apparently retweeted hundreds of thousands of times yesterday or in the last couple of days. Guess who was retweeting it? Russian operatives and Russian bots, which I guess are basically Twitter robots that automatically retweet these things. As a matter of fact, I I think I have this right. Of the 600 accounts that are associated with Russian government operations, all of them, the most popular hashtag during that time period was Fire McMaster. 
Seriously. Okay? <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> this doesn't happen by accident. Now, we also have to keep in context here that this was the week that Donald Trump finally signed the sanctions against Russia. He did so kicking and screaming, and he did so in a way that was utterly embarrassing. I think the most underrated thing that happened this week, the most outrageous thing that happened this week from Trump's perspective, and maybe for longer than a week's period of time, was that Trump responded to Russia kicking out over 700 American diplomats and taking two pieces of our land, which normally would have evoked in a, a furious response. Remember, I hit back 10 times as hard, Donald Trump, has, has, has evoked zero response from Trump except to blame Congress. He blamed Congress for the bad relations between Russia and the United States. He didn't blame Russia for hacking our election. He didn't blame Putin for all the things that he's done. He blamed Congress. And John McCain immediately fired back with a tweet that was wildly popular, saying, "Uh uh-uh, this was because of Putin. This was not because of of Congress. But you got to look at all this within the context of the larger picture. It's all consistent with Trump being compromised by Russia and Putin. It's now becoming so obvious that that he is compromised to some degree that I feel silly even mentioning it. Yet, to the large majority of the conservative base or Republicans or whatever you want to call what we are this day and age in this upside-down world, that's fantasy. It's absurdity. I, I get this all the time for people I know. People on the golf course, they think it's all fake news, liberal bullshit. That's because you don't know all the details because you're only getting your information from Fox News, Talk Radio, and Matt Drudge, who aren't giving you all of the context, all the information, putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. And our, we're scheduled to, to speak with, uh, with a guy, as I mentioned, in hour number two, is a big Trump fan who may be playing a big role in this. That's one of the reasons why I want to talk to him. Is is he really playing a role knowingly, or is he being duped? Is he is he being used as a stooge? So that's when I, I seek to find out in hour number two. I had some fun with a column that I wrote last. Uh, this is the last Trump element uh, of hour number one. I had some fun with a, a column I wrote uh, about all that's been happening with Donald Trump and how it might be perceived if Trump was the leader of a third world country. Now, it's important to point out, this was a column I wrote for Mediate with tongue firmly implanted in cheek. Yet, both Roger Stone, who is a former Trump aide and still close Trump confidant, and Alex Jones, the crazy, nutty, conspiracy theorist host on InfoWars, who's also close to Trump, both posited, unbeknownst to me, very similar theories, only for real. Although Stone actually deleted his tweet, implying what I was joking about was true. And here's what I'm referring to. The, the headline 
of the column I wrote pretty much tells you everything you need to know. If the United States of America was a third world nation, we might suspect that there was a silent coup happening there. Because it occurred to me, wow. And I'm, I'm an anti-conspiracy person. I realize this is impossible. It's not happening. I want to make that abundantly clear. But just I, wanna, I want you to pretend, pretend for a second, that Trump is leading a third world nation. Let's or even take Trump's name out of it. I'm going to tell you about what's going on in a third world nation. And you tell me if you wouldn't automatically presume that there's some sort of a coup going on. Here are the following things I reference. This country has a charismatic and tough-talking populist president who was recently elected in a massive upset, which was condemned by most of his country's establishment. This president has failed to get any major laws through his legislature, despite his own party being in control of both bodies. This president recently had his chief of staff suddenly resign and was replaced by a former military general. This president announced a major change in policy for military personnel, and there is no sign that his highly publicized order has yet to be implemented at all. This president's hand-selected director of communications, who publicly warned that there are people close to this president who are trying to save their nation from him, was forced out by this former general, the now chief of staff, after only 11 days on the job, and he was escorted off the property. Several of this president's cronies have just been removed from his National Security Council by a military general whom his supporters loathe. This president has publicly chastised his own country's chief law enforcement official, a a loyal political ally, and was rumored to be ready to fire him. But that shows no sign of actually happening, and it appears now that the new chief of staff has forbidden any such firing by this president. It was recently leaked to the media, apparently by very close aides, that this president helped his son write a false cover story to explain a possibly criminal meeting during his campaign with representatives from a foreign adversarial power. By the way, that was an extraordinary development this week. And it wasn't just the reality that Trump helped Don Jr. write that statement. It was that someone really close to Trump decided to leak that information. That's the headline. That's the holy shit. What? I mean, how close to Trump do you have to be to be able, and it was multiple people. How close to Trump do you have to be to leak that? And you would only leak that, one, if you thought it was really significant, which it is, and two, you thought, oh, my God, this guy's got to be stopped. There's no other way to interpret that leakage. Back to this list. This country's legislature overwhelmingly approved sanctions on this same adversarial foreign power and specifically curtailed the power of their president to change these sanctions. This president, clearly under great duress, finally signed the sanctions bill into law, but not until after complaining greatly about doing so. This adversarial foreign power then called this president impotent, and this president responded by blaming his own legislature for the poor state of their relations with them. The transcripts of two key and very embarrassing phone calls this president had with foreign leaders are then also leaked to the media. I'm referring here to the ones with Mexico and Australia. And by the way, how dumb is Trump's cult that they don't read the phone call with Mexico 
as him basically saying that his supporters are so dumb, they believe in this whole wall thing and that Mexico is going to pay for the wall, but I can't have anyone saying that. So if you say that publicly, I'm going to have to, uh, you know, there's going to be repercussions, but of course there won't be because he's a big wussy. But I mean, if you're a Trump supporter on immigration and you read the transcript of that phone call with Mexico and you still believe in Donald Trump, I'm sorry, you're a moron. You know, finishing up this list, a special counsel empowered to investigate this president's campaign dealings with this adversarial foreign power impaneled a grand jury in the very city where this president sometimes resides. Prominent members of this president's own party made it publicly clear that any effort by this president to fire this special counsel will be met with extraordinary efforts to stop this from happening. This president's security detail announced that it was abandoning protection of his personal residence. Secret Service, Trump Tower. That actually happened, folks. And finally, his legislature, before going on summer recess, made a special effort and a unanimous decision to prevent this president from using a key power while they are gone, specifically recess appointments. I'm sorry. You look at everything I just told you, and that's happening in the third world. You're going, wow. There's a coup. That, there is a coup going on. I don't believe there's a coup going on. I do believe that Trump's had his balls snipped. And with his approval ratings now finally slightly dipping into the sometimes low 30s, I don't know how he gets his balls back. Something dramatic has to happen for him to get his balls back. And given his, given his personality, once he realizes that his balls are snipped, he's only going to engage in more self-destructive behavior. And that will only embolden people like Jeff Flake on the Republican side to no longer fear him because he's a ballless bully. And he's proving that more and more every day. The Sessions thing, I know that people have forgotten about it, but I think that was a key moment. When when Trump backed down on firing Sessions, which was politically the smart thing to do because it would have been catastrophic had he done it, but he basically exposed himself as being a ballless bully who no one should fear. All right, enough about Donald Trump for this week. A couple other stories I want to mention in the remaining moments we have in this hour number one. The Trump administration, uh, this I guess is indirectly related to uh, Donald Trump, has been uh, making overtures or rumblings that they're going to try to curtail affirmative action, that they're going to try to cut back on alleged discrimination against white people when it comes to college admissions. And this is one of those things that I'm all in favor of. You go. That's great. Fantastic. I got no problem with that at all. I have suspicions as to whether or not it's ever going to happen. See, with Trump, you should question everything. But all Trump really wants is the headline because his cult then thinks it actually happened (laughs) because they're willing to give him all benefits of the doubt. Like, like with the transgender ban. There's no indication that that's actually happened. Now, maybe it eventually will, but it was so much fanfare. It was just a tweet. And so far, to my knowledge, nothing's actually occurred. And I think we would have heard about it by this point if transgender people were actually being kicked out of the military for being transgender. But he got his headline, so his cult already thinks it happened. But anyway, with regard to affirmative action, This is one of those issues that, um, of many, 
that really bugs me with regard to political correctness. I'm okay with people trying to get their way in one direction, but it's when people try to get their way in both directions or multiple directions that it really starts to bother me. It's not my, my, in my personal life too. My wife can run all over me like happens with most husbands as long as she's remotely consistent and it only happens in one direction. If you, if, but you, when you go in both directions, okay, now we got a problem. That's where I have to draw the line. I'm putting the foot down and I'm, I am going to defend that turf till I die. And oftentimes I do, metaphorically speaking. But I digress. The point here is this. I saw a lot of response this week from on the on the left from people who were saying oh it's just so awful that black students in colleges have to deal with the stigma the stigma of people not thinking that their credentials were legitimate because they're black and that now white people and Asian people presume that if you're a black person at a major university or an elite university, you must have gotten there because you're black. I'm calling bullcrap. I'm sorry. You only get it one way. If you want there to be affirmative action, which I don't even think we have the need for anymore, but if you want there to be affirmative action, okay, fine. But guess what? In return, you are going to be susceptible or vulnerable to some suspicion. Now, guess what? If you're really smart and really uh, good at what you do and accomplished and get great grades and trust me, no one's going to presume that you got in just because you're black. Now, if there's other reasons that substantiate, wait a minute, how'd this person get into Princeton or Harvard or Yale and you happen to be a black female, you'd have to be an imbecile, not to go, oh, I understand how they got in. They're a black female. Or if they're from a poor neighborhood, that's another factor that's huge for those types of schools. And I know this because I've I've been an alumni interviewer for Georgetown University, which is somewhat in the same neighborhood of elite schools. And Georgetown, if you're if you're poor black female, you might as well just write your own ticket. Just tell, okay, when when do you want to come? How much do you want to pay us, if anything? That's basically what it is. As long as you meet certain basic requirements. That's a fact. That's not some right-wing conspiracy or making excuses for white people. That's just the truth. And okay, fine. I get that at a certain point we needed that. I think we've grown past it. I think it's counterproductive now. But you don't don't then get to also complain about the stigma. (laughs) Pick a lane, people. Just pick a damn lane. Do you want affirmative action or do you do you want not to have to live with the stigma? And, I, and the stigma, by the way, I have disdain for it. I hate the fact that I am forced logically to all, always be s- suspicious or skeptical or cynical about any academic achievement by black people, especially black females. Although I shouldn't even be using the female because in certain neighborhoods, a black male will get just as much, if not more, advancement from affirmative action as a female. But the reason I'm using females is because you check two boxes as opposed to one. You check a, a male box, I mean, a female box and, and the, and a African-American box. But I digress. The point here is that I can't stand that. I am automatically suspicious 
and I have to be. Logic dictates it over the academic achievements of anybody who's black. I'll give you an example of this. There have been a couple of stories I've noticed in, in the last year or two. Local student becomes one of the first people ever admitted into every Ivy League school. Now, I knew immediately in seeing that headline, oh, it's a black female. There was no picture. It was just a headline I saw. Oh, so a black female thinks that she's brilliant because she got into every single uh, Ivy League school. Shockingly, yes, black female from not particularly good neighborhood. Now, is that wrong? Well, it's not wrong any, in any direction. I don't have any problem with her getting into those schools. I, you know, to a certain degree, depends on what her level of academic achievement is. But I also, it's logical to presume, based upon what we know about the rules of the game, that the only way you could get in <laughs> to all eight Ivy League schools is if you had the turbocharged advancement, like the steroids, the academic steroids, of being a black female from a poor background. And sure enough, that's always going to be the case. Almost, I mean, almost always. So that bothered me. Another liberal agenda item that drives me crazy, which we saw again this week, is the never-ending drumbeat of the bullshit that is global warming and climate change. There was a report out <laughs> in the last couple of days involving Europe that by 2100, 2100, the year 2100, that two out of every three people in Europe will have been dramatically impacted by an extreme weather event because of global warming slash climate change. Now, there are so many problems with this, but it's, it's reported as if it's fact. The number one problem is, isn't it convenient that the predictions are for the year 2100? What happens in 2100? Well, first of all, it's a big round number. So I'm always, I'm inherently skeptical of, okay, why 2100? Because it's a round number. But more importantly than that, in 2100, not one person making the prediction will still be alive to be accountable for it. Not one. And almost nobody reading the story will still be alive and able to say, hey, wait a minute, what happened to that prediction? Uh, they told me by 2100 that Europe was going to be a complete mess because of extreme weather events. Another problem is there is no area where global warming climate change predictions have been less accurate than in the area of extreme weather. We have been told constantly, oh, there's going to be so many more tornadoes. Oh, the hurricanes are going to be horrendous. Even the snowstorms are going to be worse because of global warming somehow. There's no evidence of that at all. In fact, every statistic I've seen in this country indicates that in the last few decades, tornado and hurricane activity, major hurricane activity, is down. And the two major storms we've had in recent times, Katrina and Sandy, were Katrina wasn't even all that bad. It was a big hurricane, but it was mostly because of the nature of New Orleans that that became such a clusterfuck. It wasn't because of the weather or the climate or hurricane being way bigger than ever been before. 
It's because New Orleans is under sea level and it and is run by a bunch of morons. That's what happened in New Orleans. And Sandy was a more of like a winter storm for all intents and purposes. That wasn't global warming. I, and the, the tornadoes have been way down by every account. And I always go back to drought. Drought, if there was global warming of any sort, we would be seeing drought immediately. Because drought is something that is easily tracked and is directly relatable or connected to the idea of warming. If, you're, if the earth is warming, obviously things dry more quickly and there might be less rain depending obviously in the tropics you might get more rain but the point is there would be areas of massive drought you can argue over global temperature i don't believe in global temperature because i don't think anyone was taking the damn temperature in desert areas 50 60 70 years ago before there was air conditioning so we're inherently taking the temperature from warmer places but let's even pretend that there is such a thing as global temperature and it's increasing. Where's the drought? Look at the map, the drought map of the United States, which, by the way, I do on a, like a bi-weekly basis. There's like a record amount of areas that are not in drought. The, the extreme drought area is like at an all-time low. This after being told two years ago that we were in per- Perpetual drought here in California. That turned out to not be true. There's almost no major drought areas in America right now. The same goes for Europe. And I realize this is going to sound, you know, the, the, the pro-global warming people will think, oh, that's unfair what you're about to do here, John. Well, hold on a second. The global warming people use anecdotal evidence all the time to try to make their case because they none of their predictions ever turn out right. So they're constantly using situations where, you know, the, uh, the this ice cap, look at this, this ice mountain or mountain where there's normally snow. There's not as much snow as there normally would be. Okay, I'm a golf fan. We are 40 years removed from a situation where in 1977, and by the way, it wasn't just one year. It was 76 and 77. If you take the golf years of 76 and 77, 40 years ago, by the way, in a time period where we we're still talking about an ice age was coming. That was the that was the scientific narrative back in the 70s. But certainly no talk of global warming. But 40 years is enough time if global warming was going to have an impact. Take a look at the golf world of major championships. Just go back, look online at the video. For the British Open in 1976 and 77 and the PGA Championship in 1977. In the British Open in 76 and 77, literally in 76, the golf course caught on fire. In 77, it was known as the duel in the sun. It was, they played on brown grass. It was like 80 degrees every day. There was no rain anywhere. It was a complete drought. In the United States, Pebble Beach was brown. In 1977, every shot they hit, dust came up into their faces. This is a golf course on the ocean in 1977. This year, the British Open, by the way, not just isolated one week, the men's British Open, the men's senior British Open, the women's British Open, 
every single day. Cold and rainy. Golf course green as could possibly be in three different sections of Great Britain. No drought anywhere. (laughs) Anywhere close. This is 40 years later. Similarly, in the United States of America. Rain everywhere. Everywhere. No sign of drought you can find anywhere. This is not the way it would be happening if this was real, is my point. doesn't prove it. Again, I'm using a tactic that the left always uses, so I think it's legitimate. But the point is, we would be seeing drought all the time if this was real. It's not. And here we have Al Gore, the king of this bullcrap theory, going on Bill Maher last night and saying he thinks he still won Florida. Well, no one has ever concluded there's any evidence he won Florida in 2000, yet he believes it. So here's a guy who millions and millions of people across the world are believing about the future of the planet based upon Al Gore's word, and he believes something about his own life that is 100% false. And certifiably so, that he won Florida in 2000. It's just insanity. All right, last couple real quick things before we leave. This weekend is Hall of Fame weekend for football in Canton, Ohio, a place where I've spent some time. Actually broadcast uh, from the football stadium there back in my high school broadcasting days in Steubenville, Ohio, Wheeling, West Virginia. And... There are uh, the two things I want to mention here. Number one, if you get a chance, watch the speeches for the Hall of Fame induction. One, they're always incredibly emotional and interesting, although sometimes they go a little long now because they get so much TV coverage. But I want you to listen for one thing in these Hall of Fame speeches because I've never heard it in the 30-some years I've been watching these things. Never once have I ever heard someone inducted into the National Football Hall of Fame ever thank somebody for taking it easy on them when they were a kid. Never one time. Gee, I just want to thank my high school coach for letting me get away with what I did that day and to being so easy on me and not working me hard and being my friend. That has never been uttered in the history of Football Hall of Fame induction speeches, ever. And there's a lesson to be learned there because greatness does not come about because you took it easy on somebody in their formative years. Somewhat related to this, there's been a lot of controversy lately over the issue of concussions in football and a study that recently, I guess it was two weeks ago, the New York Times published about CTE and that 110 out of 111 uh, National Football League players who were tested after their death for CTE actually had CTE. Now, I'm not denying that there's a problem here. I mean, it's a lot more legitimate than the global warming stuff. There's some real scientific basis for it. It makes sense. We actually see it. But here's the major flaw, and it's a major flaw in that study, which makes it scientifically worthless. The only reason you get tested for CTE is if you and or people around you think you might have had it. So that's why you get tested after you're dead. So therefore, of course, it's going to be almost 100% that you have CTE. I mean, it's kind of like saying we should ban football because of these CTE tests 
because everyone who thinks they have it has it. It's like saying, let's ban sex because almost everybody who thinks they have a sexually transmitted disease turns out to have one. It's, a, it's inherently a biased sample, not just a little biased, extraordinarily biased sample. So anyway, all right. That's uh, it for hour number one. Make sure you pay attention and listen to hour number two and number three with two really very interesting interviews from very different perspectives on stories that do uh, involve Donald Trump and Russia. So uh, make sure you do that. And also, as always, I ask only two things of you. Number one, uh, if you like this, please share it via word of mouth or social media. And number two, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you do, you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. My name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.